In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The collect that Josh prayed early in our service is, to me, one of the most powerful and personally moving in, in the whole Christian year. It is so because it reminds me so wonderfully, tenderly, and powerfully of what I feel called here to support. That is this prayer that God would increase in us, increase in you, and increase in me, the gifts of faith, hope, and charity. And it so happens that this prayer is, this prayer today is paired with three wonderful readings, each of which underscores one of these points. In Matthew, we get a profound lesson about faith. In Deuteronomy, a profound lesson about hope. And in 1 Thessalonians, a profound lesson about charity or love. Let's look first at Jesus and faith in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus has been entertaining a series of questions from different groups. He's finally just dismissed the the Sadducees. They're one of the two main parties in Israel. They were the the rich ritualists who, who oversaw temple worship, and they just happened not to believe in in resurrection, they were like, your best life now, people. And he had just handled them with his question about resurrection. The people left for him to discuss are the Pharisees. They are the party of the people, the, uh, the Amharats. The, they're the people that Jesus relates to most closely theologically and himself being one of the people. And the question now is, what's the great commandment? Now, the the Pharisees were about developing personal piety and righteousness and social and corporate justice and righteousness that would make the people worthy worshipers of God, worthy of His presence. Now, naturally enough, among the Pharisees, there, were the, there was between them, among them, uh, splits. There was a more restrictive and traditionalist wing. Let's call them the make Israel great again party. And then there were the people that were kind of more progressive, more, um, more permissive. And they tended to champion the poor of the poor. And because Galilee up north was where, oh, the, the unwashed and the, 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 the rubes were thought to live, let's call, and the Pharisees would be, this wing of the Pharisees would be the champions of, of those guys. So let's call them the um, Galilean lives matter. And the question put to Jesus is, what's the great and first commandment? And he gives an answer that would be a consensus answer among both sides of the Pharisaic party. Love the Lord your God. Love Him completely. 
and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, of course, that still leaves plenty of room for how you interpret, how you do that. Now, this is a question and answer session that shows up in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Mark, Luke, and Matthew. In Mark, Jesus concludes the conversation by saying, get the right answer to that question and you're not far from the kingdom. In Luke, Jesus concludes this conversation by going on to tell a parable that gives an illustration of how to love your neighbor. And he introduces the factor of, well, Samaritan lives matter. In Matthew, Jesus introduces a whole new factor into the equation. It's almost like there's a sense of self-satisfaction, mutual satisfaction in the room because they're all like, yeah, we're together in this. And then all of a sudden he says, now, what do you all say about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they go like, well, David's son. And he goes, okay, well, if the Messiah is David's son, how is it that a thousand years ago, David writes a psalm, Psalm 110, in which he imagines Yahweh, the great Lord of the universe, turning and saying to someone on his right hand, you are Lord, rule until I set every enemy under your feet. You see, Matthew has a very distinct idea of who Jesus is. And he wants the Pharisees to understand that it's not enough to want to love God and to love your neighbor. But there is a divine factor that has to enter in. There has to be a divine inbreaking into our lives to enable us, to equip us, to show us how to love God and our neighbor. And that is, God himself has to come. Matthew's gospel is the one who tells us that Jesus's name doesn't mean just Yahweh saves, but means God is with us. While the Pharisees had taught that the law, the Torah says, take my yoke upon you and you will find rest. Jesus almost imperiously says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus has the audacity to say that he is here greater than the temple. He, Jesus, is here greater than Solomon. And now, a thousand years after David spoke, Jesus says that when David spoke the words of Psalm 110, King David had already recognized that he, the Messiah, was already alive, was already ruling at the right hand of Yahweh, and was being worshiped by David. My first burden for you and me, especially those of us who've grown up in church that have taught us to value leaning into righteousness, personal and 
corporate is that it's not enough to have the right direction of heart to love and to draw others into love. We need God to come into our lives, to meddle with our lives, and to establish His own rule through His Son. So this is my first prayer for you, that God give you faith, that you, that you and I understand that it's more than the love for God and neighbor that we can muster up. But God had to come to you first in His love. And that at a fundamental level, all that you and I have to offer are bowed knees and open hands. Knees bowed in worship and hands open to accept and to receive His love his life, and his forgiveness. Deuteronomy, Moses, and hope. Moses' bucket list is pretty full. Look at the things that are said about Moses. Servant of the Lord, sight unimpaired and vigor not abated. He's 120 years old. But he can, he's still got 20-20 fighter jet vision, and his vigor is not abated. He has had the privilege of making sure that the next generation has good leadership. He has laid his hands on Joshua, who's now filled with the Spirit. Never since, and this, this paragraph was, was written sometime after. And Moses' life. Never since has there been a prophet in Israel like Moses, who, whom Yahweh knew face to face, who was unequal for all the signs that he had done in helping to liberate Israel from Egypt. And yet, there's one box on Moses' bucket list that is not going to get checked off. While Moses is allowed to go up on a high mountain on the east side of Jordan and to look across and to see where God's people are going to get to go, he knows he doesn't get to go. He doesn't get to go into the promised land and instead... He dies, and he is to be buried in an unmarked grave. Nobody will be able to come and honor him at his tomb. There could be bitterness. There could be resentment. There could be, come on, God, really? But there's not a word of that because Abraham's hope was anchored not in the filling of his bucket list, but his hope was anchored like Abraham's in the God who promised a city with foundations, whose architect and builder was God himself. My hope for you, my hope for me, is that whether your bucket 
list is full when the end comes, or whether there are going to be some profound disappointments, your hope will have been set in such a way that the disappointments don't matter, just like Moses. I think about, I think about Ulysses S. Grant. I've been reading Ron Chernow's brilliant biography of Grant. You know, he rose to be really one of the best presidents we ever had. It was finally he who was able to coordinate the Union armies to finally uh, bring cessation to the war between the states. As president, he worked hard to bring about racial reconciliation. Even as a general, he worked to bring liberated blacks into the Union army. And as president, he worked hard to suppress the efforts of the Ku Klux Klan and others in the South that resisted reconciliation. And yet, there was a lot of disappointment in his life. He dies a very painful death from throat cancer because of this, all the cigars he smoked to compensate for the alcohol that virtually took over his life. And all along the way, Grant went from one disappointment to another only to see like a providential hand carrying him all along. It was Grant's father who wanted him to go to West Point. Grant's father was like a little league dad. Grant didn't want to go to West Point, but his dad did, so he went. Grant's actual name was as I recall, Homer Ulysses Grant. He winds up at West Point, and a clerk wrongly enters his name as Ulysses S. Grant. And Grant had a younger brother named Simpson, so maybe there was a confusion there. And Grant tried to get them to change that, because he didn't, he didn't like that. But it winds up that now his official initials are U.S. Grant. So his nickname becomes Uncle Sam, U.S. Grant. And it becomes a great providence for him to like bear his nation's name even though he didn't want it. He was the best cavalry person at West Point. Whenever there was a big parade, out, out, they'd line up on, out on the grounds and, and soldiers would, cadets would show their stuff. They'd always get Grant, get on your horse and show us how it's done. And he would just he would just do his horse thing. He wanted, after West Point, to get into the, into the cavalry, but for some reason, he got assigned to the infantry. Oh, even worse, not, an, not for combat a duty, but to be in charge of logistics, a quartermaster like Radar O'Reilly. Radar O'Reilly, O'Reilly, help me. O'Reilly, yes? Okay, I just need to make sure you're there. Radar O'Reilly in MASH, his job is to make sure everybody had the supplies they need. So like during the Mexican War, he learns how to make sure that when armies are marching for however many, um, many miles in a day, at the end of the day, there's already firewood ready for them. Their tents are all set up and they're ready to go the next day. And because he's not allowed to fight though he wished he could, he gets to observe and watch the way 
commanding officers strategize and, and do their thing, which means he gets to observe and take notes on the generals that he's going to fight with in the Union Army and against in the Confederate Army. Huge advantage years later, despite his frustrations. Then he winds up in Washington, Oregon, Northern California, with a severe alcohol problem, because he's lonely. And he basically has to resign his commission around 1850, early 50s or so, has to resign his commission or face court-martial, goes back home to the Midwest, ashamed and fear. He's a bad businessman, but he tries to make it in the farming world, and he can't. He, he, he builds a little cabin that his wife is ashamed of. It's called Hard Scrabble, and then the war breaks out, and because of connections back home, he gets an appointment, and then and Cherno says if he had stayed in California as a captain, he would have just fallen off into obscurity. But because of where he is, because of the people who know him there, he gets a commission. And the next thing you know, he is coordinating all the, all the armies. Plenty to be bitter and disappointed about but always with a sense that there is something more to hope for. Nay, you and I face every, every source of potential bitterness and discouragement with courage and with a sense that God has got this. So that as Moses, when we get to the end, we can say, you know what? There's plenty on, on there's plenty of check marks on my bucket list, and if I don't get everything that I want, the Lord has it in His hands, and He has numbered my days, and He, as our offertory hymn today put it so well, He has proved Himself to be the God of all ages and the God who has cared for me. And then finally, Paul's letter, a note of charity or love. Paul spends some time talking, as he sometimes does, about the way he ministers. He talks about his lack of base motives, the truthfulness with which he ministers, answering to God and not to others, and then especially the tenderness that he feels toward the people that God has called him to minister. And then he closes this paragraph with this some of the most beautiful words he ever writes. We are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. Uh, friends, that, that's the way I feel about you. I want, when my Moses day comes, I want to be able to say that you have been so dear to me that as hard as I've worked to share the truth that I know with you, that more fundamentally I've shared myself with you. When I was, when I first became a Christian, the thing that put me over the line was somebody challenged me 
to make a list of all the people that I had sinned against that would keep me out of heaven if, you know, that question ever came up. And so I started writing and writing. Next thing I know, I had a page of people and I was just crying about how, what a bad person I was. And that kind of was the breakthrough for my realizing I needed a savior. Let me suggest another couple of kind of lists, more on the plus side. I'll bet you that if you took out a piece of paper and wrote down uh, that you, and wrote down these names, it would be a long name, a long list, and you would be weeping with joy. And that would be, who are the people in your life along the way that not only taught you good things, pointed you to the Lord Jesus Christ and to a way of life that is pleasing to him, but gave themselves to you and in their lives made it more plausible, made it impossible for you to say no to that kind of love. You might just take a piece of paper this afternoon, after your afternoon nap, and say, Lord, who are the people from whom I caught the faith as much as who taught me the faith? And then I suggest maybe a second list, a list of the people who depend upon you, who need you to be not just teachers, but embodiers, personifications of the gospel. I'll bet you that list is pretty long too. And then give thanks. Almighty and everlasting God, increase in us, we pray, the gifts of faith, hope, and charity, and that we may obtain what you promise Make us love what you command through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever.